Welcome to the Reformanda Initiative podcast, where we analyze and discuss Roman Catholic theology and practice from an evangelical perspective. My name is Reed Carr. I am the Associate Director of the Reformanda Initiative. I'm sitting here uh, this afternoon in Rome with uh, Leonardo de Chirico, the Director of the uh, Reformanda Initiative. Unfortunately, our trusty communications director, Clay Kennard, is not with us today. He's usually doing the intro, so I'm trying to um, fill in his role um, poorly. But uh, <laughs> So we, we, we miss Clay, but um, we're happy to be be here. And since Clay always asks us how we're doing, Leo, I feel, yes, I, I feel yeah, it's necessary right. that I ask you how I'm you're doing. I'm very well. Thank okay. you very much. What about you, Rick? Yes. Okay, <laughs> also <laughs> well. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> we're also we, – Clay is also uh, – the expert with the audio and and all that so we, we don't have that stuff set up or recording on a computer so not sure what how the quality of this will be but hopefully it will be sufficient uh to yeah sufficient to our listeners and and understandable i think it will be mm-hmm. but i apologize for the uh the the quality that is lacking that usually we have uh, thanks to clay and his uh, expertise on those things so we we just recently returned, Clay included, but and he's obviously not here with us from a trip to the U.S., where we uh, partook in, or, or led uh, a conference course at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, in collaboration, of course, with the seminary. Um, Dr. Greg Allison, who uh, helps us, uh, has contributed since the very beginning to the Reformation Initiative and the Rome Scholars and Leaders Network we do each summer, and. So we we decided to do kind of a, a little bit of a test run, a mini a mini uh, Roman scholars Rome scholars and leaders network there uh, with university students it was also open to the public. Uh, so we were there for three full days teaching a course. Um, after that, uh, Leonardo and Clay returned to Rome. I remained in the states for a few more days. Traveled down to Tennessee to two churches, one in Crossville, Tennessee, Cumberland Fellowship Church. Uh, we have good friends there and another in um, Lebanon, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville, where we either have good friends and, and partners at the uh, the Journey Church. Uh, we had the opportunity to talk about Roman Catholicism. And it's it's always interesting, even in the South and the United States, where you would think, well, maybe people aren't as interested in Roman Catholicism or there's not a whole lot of exposure to it. Maybe no need to really talk about it. Uh, it always generates tremendous interest, even in the deep south, we'll say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I come from Georgia and and can um, confirm that as well. In fact, we always ask people, you know, what's your exposure to Roman Catholicism? Do you have uh, family or friends or, or relatives uh, or maybe yourself had, had uh, exposure to or experience with Roman Catholicism? And, and it's usually 80% of the hands go up. And so uh, at the at the churches in Tennessee, we had really good turnouts. A couple hundred people come to to listen, to ask questions. Uh, had a good turnout of students at the Southern Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and so very thankful for uh, for that. And of course, the frustrating thing is, it's impossible to cover all of Roman Catholicism in, in one evening. But I uh, tried to give a framework for helping to better understand it and and to give time for answering questions. There's never enough time for that, and. In fact, that's what uh, we wanted to dedicate an episode to. We've been meaning to do it for a long time. And all of our episodes at the end, Clay says, hey, if you have questions, please let us know. And then we're um, a little bit slow to respond to them uh, just because, um, you know, this is something we do in our extra time. And and uh, 
and don't get around to it as we would like. But today we wanted to, as some of the churches we were at in the States, there were extra questions. We didn't have time to them, so they sent us them. And so we thought it would be a good opportunity to uh, to answer some questions that our listeners have. We're very thankful for them. We're very thankful for the opportunities to come and speak on Roman Catholicism and pray the Lord uses it. And mm-hmm. that's what we're doing it for. And so, um, yeah, we we pray it's helpful. Before we dive into these questions, uh, Leonardo, is there anything you would add about the trip to the States or anything? It was a very good opportunity to have this course at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, that's part of the vision of the Reformand Initiative, not only to host uh, the Rome Scholars and Leaders Network in June here in Rome, but also to respond to invitations around uh, the world to raise the issue of Catholicism, how to respond to it, how to interpret it. And so I think it was uh, a very positive experience and uh, we had a good number of participants uh, taking the course. Okay, well, without further ado, let's uh, jump into some questions. One question we get a lot uh, is uh, an understandable question. It says, do you believe that in the Catholic Church there are people who have a relationship with with Christ? Pretty straightforward question. Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, God knows uh, his own. And uh, uh, if a person trusts uh, Christ um, in spite of the uh, Roman Catholic teaching concerning mediation, salvation, concerning Mary, the saints, the church, and so on. Uh, yes, uh, uh, God has his own people, even in the Catholic Church. The point is that uh, these people uh, need to be uh, inconsistently Catholic in many ways. If they follow 100% what the Catholic Church teaches, uh, it would be difficult to have a a, a relationship with Christ uh, in the way the Bible describes it. Uh, but we know that many uh, people going to the Catholic Church or claiming to be part of the Catholic Church are not 100% consistent and uh, whether they know it or not. And uh, if, as I said, one trusts uh, Christ alone for her or his salvation, uh, uh, you know, God knows, yeah, and, and yeah. he knows, uh, he knows uh, who are his own. I think that's, um, that's why we usually, at the beginning of presentations, uh, make the distinction that when we're talking about Roman Catholicism, we're not talking about Roman Catholics. Mm. Um, it is like you said, we it can only, only the Lord knows people's hearts and where they are and what they believe. And, uh, yeah, the condition of their hearts, um, in light of the gospel. But, uh, we, we discuss Roman Catholic theology and what's written, what they teach, yes. what's official. And, and, uh, like you said, is a good, a good way to put it. Um, if you take a literal uh, and consistent approach to believing that and practicing it, then you um, it's different from the biblical gospel. And it's difficult to um, it's difficult to understand how that could lead to a, uh, 
relationship with Christ as the Bible, as the Bible explains it. But <laughs> some people are inconsistently uh, Catholic and may very well, uh, most probably do have relationship with, with Christ, but um, need, you know, um, would have to be inconsistent in their, in their practice of the, of the Catholic faith. Um, so anyway, I think that's a fair, we, we, we happy with that response. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things we talked about, um, I think this was one of the things I talked about at, at one of the churches in Tennessee is, is using um, sin as kind of a, a case study for the nature grace interdependence, which we've talked about often and, and showing how in, in Roman Catholicism, the teaching is that sin wounds our wounds, our nature and what the implications of that are. We're not going to, we don't have time to go into all of that and seeing how that has unfolded over the centuries. And especially here with that um, in light of Vatican II, um, Pope Francis's uh, papacy, um, all brothers in light of all brothers. Uh, so if sin is just a, a wound on our nature, what is the need for um, penance? Well, it's part of the healing process. Um, there are different ways in which uh, the healing takes place. The sacraments, penance, good works, and uh, uh, this is all part of the remedy. Uh, the point is that since we are not dead in our sins and trespasses, um, penance is uh, all implies that we are capable of, you know, doing something that would uh, impact uh, the way in which the penalty of our sins and, um, have a bearing on, on our lives. And, uh, yeah, so that's part of the healing process. Right. If you think of a sick person that takes a pill, then takes, uh, you know, eats something uh, that is prescribed by the doctor, they're all part of this uh, uh yeah, recovery plan. Mm -hmm. But the, the point is that if you are alive, although weak, although uh, not well, you are, of course, complying and you are participating in your own healing process. Whereas if you're dead, uh, what is needed is a, is a regeneration, mm -hmm. you know, a turning from death to life. That is not something that a dead person can do on his own. He can only receive it as a passive uh, recipient. And then once quickened, once uh, regenerated, then, of course, uh, there is, you know, the work of sanctification, uh, growth in Christ, uh, and maturity uh, involving, of course, our regenerated will, our regenerated mind, our regenerated senses and so on but it's it's a it's a, it's a whole a world of difference uh, talking about these things as part of a the outcome of regeneration or as part of our healing process mm. that is the 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 latter is the 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 the, the account that the catholic church gives to what it means to be a part of this sacramental journey you are in the healing process you're sick, and so you take the medicine of grace, whereas the gospel tells us that we're dead in need of our regeneration mm. from God 
in Christ by the Spirit. So penance, in fact, underscores and highlights uh, the fact that uh, sin is merely a wound in the sense that we have something to contribute to this. We're not we're sick, but we're not dead in our sins and trespasses. So it's actually an affirmation of of this Roman Catholic teaching as opposed to, uh, like you said, being dead in our sins, needing a miraculous um, new life given to us, being new creatures in Christ. And how is that different? How is um, the uh, Catholic sacrament of penance different than, for example, in First John when he talks about uh, confess your sins one to another? Well, sure. Uh, we're talking about the same words uh, with different <laughs> meanings. Uh, of course, we have to... Uh, the, the, the root of penance is to repent, and that is part of the gospel. Mark... Uh, Mark 1, when Jesus began to preach the gospel, he said, repent and believe. So that is the way in which also Luther begins his uh, 95 Thesis. Uh, the whole of the Christian life, says Luther, is about repentance. And he's right, because that is true. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, it's the framework around it that, that that is different. If penance happens in the context of a wounded heart then it contributes to its healing or if it happens in the context of a dead heart that is regenerated Mm -hmm. by god himself then penance is the first uh, uh, outcome of that uh, regenerating work and uh, and we have to go through repentance ongoingly uh, and one way of going through repentance is by confessing our sins to one another, as James says, and uh, uh, Jesus himself. And so on the at the practical level, uh, the, the, these two uh, things can uh, appear as overlapping, <laughs> but the th- theological, understanding and the theological framework around them is very different. So uh, to summarize that, it's it's fair to say in Roman Catholicism, penance is maintaining or trying to, it's an ongoing process to uh, try to maintain a a, a renewal status. Yes. Whereas in, in, according to scripture, confessing our sins is a, product of a regenerated heart we're we're justified of our sins we're forgiven of our sins therefore we then live our life in a different way while we still battle against sin until you know until uh, the day christ returns and and we're with him for eternity or or we die and go to be with him if we trusted in him as a savior uh it's so it's a fruit of a justified of a, a juridical yes uh you are now innocent because of what christ did for you whereas in roman catholicism it's I'm trying to maintain what was the status given to me at baptism. Yes, that's right. So very different. Yeah, like you said, uh, the structure around it, the theological structure is, is very, very, very different. Um, somebody asked if, and just in your opinion, obviously it's a, an opinion question. We can't see the future, but uh, is there a discussion or we foresee, do you foresee the, the church may be um, seeing need of another council before too long. Well, that's, that's, uh, that is what um, even people in the aftermath of Vatican II began to see as a, 
as a as a possible uh, outcome of things that have not been uh, resolved mm-hmm. uh, the council left open and uh, becoming increasingly uh, controversial um yeah the uh, councils happen when uh, are convened when the church is uh, thinks that uh, there is a there is a problem there's an issue and uh, i think that vatican II has opened so many issues mm-hmm. that uh, now um it is increasingly difficult to handle them in without taking one or the other mm-hmm. uh, direction and um <clears throat> the attempt made at vatican II was to reopen the catholicity of, of the catholic church but uh in in so doing it has so enlarged the scope of the catholicity that now what is at stake is the the backbone of roman catholicism the the backdrop the the structure of the doc- doctrinal structure of catholicism and so uh well, probably a new council or uh maybe more um it would be more feasible to see that to expect a, a different pope or different popes coming after this phase of more catholic popes mm. uh, popes with with a more roman soul wanting to re re rally the catholic church around her identity markers rather than continuing this politics of expanding and enlarging making the catholic church so catholic at the expense of it being roman right so uh, if that will will uh, entail a new council or uh, different popes that is something that needs still needs to be uh, seen but i think that sooner or later this change of phase will be witnessed to because if the catholic church moves continues to move in this into this catholic direction uh, it will change its nature mm-hmm. and i don't think that catholic church is ready to do so or willing to do so interesting um there's several questions about uh the relationship between the catholic church um tradition and scripture uh, trying to wrap their minds around this relationship and thinking about the practical implications of it how does it work uh for example one person asked if the if the pope speaks when he speaks ex cathedra on official matters of church doctors he cannot err but what if it contradicts scripture which one takes president precedence and just trying this well yeah yeah that's right well according to catholic church that can never be the case right. you know if he speaks uh, as cathedra by definition it doesn't contradict but because it's christ speaking to the church uh, yes that's right the it's christ. the same big big t tradition that, right uh, <clears throat> it expresses itself and uh uh, they, ultimately there's there's never to be found a contradiction um we have a the only time when actually the pope uh, spoke ex cathedra uh, is uh, when he promulgated the dogma of uh, mary's uh, bodily assumption in 1950 you know after the uh, the dogma of papal infallibility 1870 
the only time that he has ever used the technical definition of what it is for the Pope to speak ex cathedra happened in 1950 when he said he issued or promulgated the dogma of Mary's uh, bodily assumption. So that's the test case. Does Mary's bodily assumption, is Mary bo Mary's bodily assumption taught in scripture? And the answer is no. And uh, we're not talking about contradicting. We're talking about that it is something that is not in scripture. <laughs> and yet it is now uh, a dogma, a defining uh, doctrine or belonging to the deposit of faith, belonging to something that cannot be changed because it is considered as being an integral part of what it means for the gospel to be the gospel. So here we're not even in the in the scenario of looking for contradictions. We're looking for something that is not there. And that is the only time when after 1870 the dogma, that that doctrine or that uh, claim by the Pope was actually used. And uh, uh, I think, yeah, that that's a clear evidence of the fact that, uh, as far as this dogma is concerned, we're totally beyond the yeah. grounds. Yeah, because totally the, the bodily assumption is based on the idea that, or the teaching that she was sinless. The teaching that, or oh, the the uh, Mary, yeah, thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah, it's it's the it's the. Uh, the completion of what was dogmatized in 1854 with the dogma of Mary's um, immaculate conception at the beginning of her life. And then after a century or so, uh, the Catholic Church then had to deal with the end of Mary's life. And so this idea of her having been assumed body and soul to the heavenly glory uh, kind of completed the that Marian reinterpretation of what happened to her uh, at the very beginning at the, at the very end of her uh, earthly life and uh, but both dogmas are especially the second one but even the first one are not to be found in scripture not to be found in any sense mm -hmm. in scripture and yet they are dogmas, that is, defining uh, doctrines belonging to the uh, core of the faith, the deposit of faith. So from an evangelical perspective, at least on this matter, mm. it would seem that the dog Marian dogmas contradict Scripture so that they would therefore take precedence over Scripture. However, the Catholic Church doesn't see that that way, that is... Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And in that sense, it contradicts scripture because scripture doesn't think that Mary's dogmas belong to the deposit of faith. Actually, they don't speak on it. They all. don't speak at all, at all about it. And yet, out of biblical silence, dogmas, positive dogmas are, have been developed. Mm. And not only out of biblical silence, but also against 
a biblical teaching concerning the universality of sin and the fact that there is no exception apart from Christ. Uh, and, and yet Mary is another, is another exception that is not envisioned in scripture. And, uh, um, so that's, that's, in a sense, that's a contradiction that these dogmas uh, represent with regards to uh, not only the silence of the Bible, but also the teaching right. of the Bible. So if someone has an opportunity to speak with, uh, you know, they're sharing their faith, um, witnessing to a Roman Catholic friend or a neighbor or a family member, whoever it may be, uh, I think there's kind of confusion. Like, can how how effective is it to use scripture if tradition is just as um, authoritative and perhaps more when the when push comes to shove. So, yeah. what is the what is the role of scripture? And well, it is essential because we have nothing else to apart from the Word of God. Uh, yes, we have our personal witness. Yes, we have our personal uh, lives. But ultimately, it is the truth of scripture that determines uh, where we stand. And uh, although scripture is considered as in a different way than we would consider it. We have no other uh, way apart from the Bible. So uh, the Bible, the Bible, and again, the mm-hmm. Bible, knowing that it will be interpreted in a different way, according to a much, with a, uh, against the background of a much larger framework involving the tradition of the church, the teachings of the church, the ongoing development of the teaching of the church all of this is in implied in the way in which uh, the catholic understands and deals with scripture but we don't have another yeah. uh, we we have the word and nothing else and, and praying the spirit will uh, illuminate it and, and make it relevant for uh, for them as well yeah, the people that we've known who've come to know the know the Lord come from a Catholic context it was exposure to Scripture is usually always mm-hmm. part of the part of the conversion story because yes. generally speaking, generally speaking, of course there are exceptions. Uh, Roman Catholics aren't super familiar with Scripture, so mm-hmm. reading it, like you said, you pray the Holy Spirit speaks to them through the power of the Word uh, because it is it is powerful. Um, uh, and so, yeah, we definitely, definitely use scripture and, sure. and let the Holy Spirit speak uh, through it. Um, <clears throat> someone asked uh, just if you could, in a in a in a brief way, uh, explain how a, a look, a quick look at Galatians one and Philippians one uh, helps us understand and standard understand what's at stake with uh, Roman Catholicism in 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 light of the the biblical gospel. Well, yes. Uh... There are two ways in which Paul de- deals with uh, uh, people uh, talking about the gospel or an account of the gospel and how he relates uh, uh, to them, with them. And uh, Philippians 1 is uh, the case when he is uh, actually slandered by some people going around uh trying to undermine his uh, apostolic authority and uh, causing him to suffer, to uh, 
go through uh, intense pain because of mm-hmm. the of that uh, evil uh, action but paul uh, in spite of his sober recognition that these people are doing what they do with wrong motivations and uh, evil hearts in the end he recognizes that they preach the gospel mm-hmm. so ultimately he's able to recognize that what it what they're doing is uh, preaching the gospel mm-hmm. and he rejoices although he is uh, he has pain <laughs> yeah. but he rejoices because uh, ultimately it is not his reputation that is at stake it is the gospel right. that is at stake and uh, a very different scenario is that of the letter to the galatians there paul is dealing with people who are going to uh, are visiting the churches in the galatian region and they are uh, religious people they are in a way moral people good people they cherish the old testament they cherish moses they cherish the law they cherish uh, cherish uh, uh, religion but uh, in what they teach they actually undermine uh, the gospel because they want to supplement um the gospel of Jesus received by faith alone with a kind of combination between uh, faith and works and religious uh, works um, and uh, for that uh, for for Paul that is a uh, something that undermines the gospel so there are good people in Philippians there are bad people preaching the gospel mm. In Galatians, they are good people, religiously speaking, preaching a false gospel. Mm. And he says, no way. If the gospel is not uh, taught, preached, and uh, witnessed to in the biblical way, it is not gospel at all. Even if an angel comes down and he brings about a different account of the gospel, it is not the gospel. So... uh, Translating these two paradigms into the way we relate with the Catholic Church, of course, most Catholics, even priests, uh, bishops, cardinals, religious people, nuns, monks, uh, the average Catholic, they are, many of them are good people. They're good people. They are uh, morally sound. Uh, they are, they can have some uh grasp of, of what is you know Christianity and so on. The problem is the account of the gospel. Is it the biblical gospel? And if it's not, then although loving them and wanting them to yeah. come to a saving knowledge of Christ, we have to uh, realize that what they're preaching, teaching, doing is not the biblical gospel. And given the fact that the Roman account of the gospel, Roman Catholic account of the gospel, has been given a dogmatic status, that is something that is already defined and uh, unchangeably so, we have to make, you know, this, uh, we have to realize that uh, this is what is at stake with the Roman account, mm-hmm. Roman Catholic account of the gospel. It is, it resembles the gospel, it is preached by 
religious people, good people in many ways, but it's not the gospel. And therefore, uh, we need to then uh, take, a, uh, take account of it and to um, yeah. you know, do... Treat it as such. Well, yeah, treat it as such, yes. That's right. Um, and another interesting, interesting question. I meant to ask this before the questions on Philippians one, Galatians one, but it's no problem. It has to do with scripture again. Yeah. Someone asked a good question: Is it when in the history of the church was tradition added as authority to the equal authority of of, of scripture? How did that happen? Um, they asked, was it a council or it wasn't always? I mean, if the New Testament yeah. church, when did that start uh, happening in the Catholic Church? Well, it was. It was a. It was a. There's always been a sense that. Uh, uh, scripture is, needs to be uh, interpreted with uh, useful tools. Mm-hmm. You know, the rule of faith, so to so-called in the first uh, centuries of the church. The rule of faith is the summary of basic uh, biblical teaching uh, summarized in a creedal form or in a a list of uh, doctrines and helping the believer and churches to read the Bible properly. Because from day one, you know, there were several com- opposing readings of mm-hmm. the scripture. The Arians would, would, would not believe in Jesus's full deity, would argue from scripture and uh, as well as other people. Huh? So the rule of faith. But it was always considered as a tool, a tool, a useful tool, helping people to <clears throat> read properly the Bible. And the tool was considered to arise from the Bible itself, not to be something of an external uh, summary or a given uh, something that had uh, independent authority, but a summary coming from Scripture, helping future readers to uh, engage with scripture. And it was when uh, the the church began to dogmatize, began to define dogma away from scripture, and then considering this dogma as supplementing or as... Um, Even complementing it. Yeah, complementing Yes, that's right. So it was much later than uh, it was in the Middle Ages when, for example, on the Fourth uh, Lateran Council, when, you know, the doctrine of transubstantiation was dogmatized. Mm. That is the view that through the, 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 the consecration of the priest, the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Jesus. And that is... Uh, or you know when the papacy was elevated to uh, to be considered the voice of Christ, uh, so it was not something of a process uh, beginning earlier earlier on, but mm-hmm. uh, it was more of a late uh, medieval uh, outcome. Of course, it was a process, so. That rule of faith that was meant to be a tool gradually became a kind of a complement 
and then stood as almost an independent source. And then through that, you know, the authority of the church was uh, elevated to something bigger than what it needs to be recognized. And uh, yeah. So um, let's do a couple more questions. And uh, somebody asked, just how do I, how to help me understand uh, the praying to the saints and their mediation on behalf of, of the, the Catholic, how, where did that come from? Or just help to understand that. Why is it wrong? Well, what is, what is the yeah. problem with it? Mary would be part of that as well. As yeah, one okay. of the main mediators of the church, but the saints, so and the relationship the, with the saints. The Catholic, the Catholic answer would be that that's part of the community, communion of the saints that is professed in the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the community of the saints, the communion of the saints. And uh, uh, that com- communion is stretched to those who have already died waiting for the resurrection. And so in that context, they believe that there is ongoing communication from those who are those who belong to the uh, the church now and those who belong to the church that is waiting mm-hmm. for the resurrection. There is ongoing communication so that we can pray to them, they can they can appear to us, they can uh, we can pray for them and they can pray for us. There is this ongoing circular uh, communication. But there are, there are there are two problems, main problems. One is that uh, nowhere in Scripture we're taught to cross the line between life and death. That's that's something of a uh, not to go place. Uh, only Jesus, the one who died and then uh, was raised from the dead, he crossed that line mm-hmm. twice. And is the only one through whom we can approach uh, God and the Father, because He died and uh, rose again. As far as for the other mediators or the other saints of Mary, they're dead, waiting for the resurrection, and we are never taught. Actually, we are warned not to cross that line. In the Old Testament, crossing that line is dangerous and also evil. Uh, what happened then? It was through the the Greco-Roman religious mindset that in, contrary to the Jewish Old Testament worldview had uh, uh, this relationship uh, <clears throat> as part of the uh, normal life. So the whole uh, religiosity centered on the ancestors and the ongoing negotiations taking place between those who live and those who are dead in order for the dead ones to protect the living ones and for the living ones to serve the honor uh, of the dead ones. That was part of the Greco-Roman ancient uh, religion. Unfortunately, the early church, instead of maintaining the biblical uh, standards with regards to the distinction between those who live and those who are died and the clear teaching not to cross the line, 
absorbed that Greco-Roman framework and Christianized it so that the ancestors became associated with the martyrs, the saints, and Mary. And uh, uh, the emphasis, the focus on Christ being the only one who had mm -hmm. died and uh, come back uh, as a, in, through the resurrection was uh, gradually undermined. And uh, so the explosion of the prayer to the saints and to Mary uh, obscured uh, the clear teaching of scripture that we have one mediator and because he is the one who came back from death, death. So it's a, it's actually, I think it's a very dangerous thing to do because you're actually crossing a line that the Bible consistently warns us not to cross. It's very dangerous to wanting to have something to do with the, the world of the dead apart from Christ and, uh, and Christ himself is, the Bible sa says that he is totally capable of handling all of our petitions. Mm -hmm. It's not yeah. overburned or, or he is totally capable and is the only one who can actually do that. So even the idea that he needs further sub-mediators, uh, that's, you know, undermines the, the power of Christ, right. the sufficiency of Christ, the finality of Christ, the mediatorship of Christ, it undermines a whole, uh, the whole of the gospel, really. Mm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> where did the teaching and doctrine of purgatory come from and why? Well, it's, it's a medieval uh, doctrine, the idea that there is a third space in the afterlife. Um, there is a book by the historian Jacques Legoff, The Birth of Purgatory, mm. and he traces it back to, you know, this idea of the afterlife in the Middle Ages, where most people were uh, not totally uncertain about their future destiny. They, they were uncertain. Uncertain. Yeah, uncertain. So the, the, the Augustinian doctrine was that uh, there was a, a, a the saved ones and the reprobated or the, the damned ones, the, those who were lost. And uh, people struggled in finding ways to have certainty about being having been saved. And so out of that uncertainty, the church developed this idea that, yes, we cannot really be certain, but there is, there is a remedy. There is a third space. There is, there is a solution. And so purgatory uh, filled that, um, filled that, uh, uh, concern. But it, again, it was something of an unbiblical development responding to concerns coming from uh, the uh, the grassroots of the church, but instead of the church responding to those concerns biblically by way of preaching the gospel, urging people to repent and believe, and then teaching the doctrine of assurance, they created this new doctrine that would uh, had the effect of at least calm down the 
anxiety of people not knowing where they would go because paradise in the Middle Ages was then confined to only the heroes, the saints, mm. those who had martyrs, the martyrs, the heroes of the faith. As, but for the ordinary people, there was no evidence that they would uh, deserve going to hell, to paradise, to heaven. And But at the same time, they didn't want everybody to be sent to hell. And so <laughs> they found this middle ground, middle uh, yeah. place for to respond to this concern when when exactly in the middle ages do you know or is it a definitive time or something that slowly developed? It, it slowly developed and uh, uh, it was then uh, accepted in you know in, uh, finally at the council of trent uh, okay made its final appearance but it was it was uh, argued for earlier on okay and we have uh, of course dante Dante Alighieri in his Divine Comedy, he gives voice to this already developed view whereby there are three places, hell, purgatory, and paradise. Mm-hmm. And so we are in the uh, beginning of the uh, end of the 13th century, beginning of the 14th right. century. So, um, Last question. We've already gone over our time, but questions, questions and answers are always interesting. Last question. We had a, a listener with a an interesting situation. He's been married for a long time to his wife. <clears throat> um, and she, when they got married and they're young, she was Catholic. He was Protestant. She, several years into their wedding or into their marriage, uh, became uh, a Protestant uh, just to because tensions were growing over the years. But then after that, she kind of rediscovered. Uh, started watching videos on Roman Catholicism, um, was very attracted by the church fathers and um, decided again that the the Catholic church was the true church and said, you know, basically being mostly attracted to the church fathers and the the high emphasis that the Catholic church has on them. How could the church fathers, especially those writing in the early centuries after uh, of the, of the history of the church, how could they have been wrong on, on matters like that? So, back to Catholicism and and trying to understand the relationship that the Catholic Church has with the church fathers and how the 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 Protestant church should, should view them that's we could do a whole discussion on that but just um, how would you how would you respond to that well uh, sadly in most uh, Protestant churches there is very little teaching on uh, the church fathers and the, the appropriate way to, to, to read them and to interpret them. And, uh, sadly that creates a sort of a vacuum or a, a void that, uh, when people begin to ask questions is then filled with, uh, Roman Catholic answers. Uh, so, um, I think that we have to, question the Roman Catholic account of the Church Fathers as supporting um, Roman Catholic dogmas, teachings, practices at all points with consistency. Church Fathers are not a unified, coherent, single block of people and teachings. It's a very, it's a universe uh, made of 
different uh, fathers writing on different things with different uh, kinds of consistencies. Um, the reformers, the 16th century reformers, they consider themselves to be uh, heirs of the church fathers, but not placing the church fathers as the ultimate authority, but as long as, as far as, as long, as much as the church fathers had properly understood scripture. So they could see them as interpreters of the Bible, teachers of the Bible, human teachers, so at points being inconsistent, and uh, having the Bible as the supreme authority. That's the way I think that we should read the, the fathers. So questioning the Roman Catholic account of the fathers as if they were a unified body, they're not. They're very diverse and very, uh, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a jigsaw, it's a mosaic that is made of different pieces. We have to clearly understand each piece and according to its own terms, not putting them in the same you know, category as that's a Roman Catholic bad exegesis of the fathers as you know, implying that there's a common consensus or it's a unified voice. It's not. And then to learn from the reformers who had uh, a clear perception that what they were doing was not doing something new, but uh, revitalizing biblical truth as it had been taught on basic foundational things by the church fathers at large, not all of them, or not all of them, and not with the same degree of consistency all the time, but on the whole, they would use that expression, finding themselves on the shoulders of the fathers, in order to see even further, but on the shoulders, not reinventing, so to speak, the uh, the wheel, but uh, taking advantage of what the fathers had done in properly handling scripture and being also free to say that when the fathers had gone wrong, they had gone wrong. So without idolizing yeah. them or elevating them to the supreme. So, but there is a whole, uh, in Protestant, in evangelical circles, there is a whole uh, a big work to be done on uh, that process from the from the closing of the canon, so to speak, on the uh, revival or reformation of biblical doctrine in the 16th century. We have, you know, a millennium there that uh, needs to be studied carefully and not to be given to the Catholic Church to feel or to interpret it according to its own apologetic mm. account. But uh, doing the homework and uh, uh, and uh, realizing that, that that is what even the reformers uh, did in their own time. Certainly the proximity of some of the early church fathers to the New Testament church means nothing really. I mean, there's even we, we see right away that there yeah, were troubles in the church. Tendencies, different tendencies were, arising and uh, different trends. And so uh, even in, I mean, if we read the New Testament yeah. itself, if you read the, the seven letters uh, 
of the, of the Book of Revelation. Yeah. They're all churches that had been founded uh, years, a few years before, and yet they were already right. very strong. Right. Well, Galatians one, you mentioned uh, Galatians, Galatians one, one. Corinthian uh, teaching, yeah, uh, all kinds of problems uh, come arising from day one. So yeah. that argument is is poor if it's not accompanied with a strong emphasis on the written word, yeah. the way in which Peter uh, argues in First Peter says. We saw the, the Lord, we touched him, we, but we have a more a sure foundation, the written yeah. word. That's what Peter would have, would have done rather than just claiming proximity, historical proximity to the facts or to the people who had seen uh, the Lord Jesus uh, and the eyewitnesses. Yeah. I think there's a, uh, a common tendency when thinking about you know, one of the solo, one of the five solos, scripture alone, uh, interpreted to mean that nothing else is really of, of value. No. Um, that's not what that's not what that means. And we you already talked about the reformers were on the shoulders of giants, as they as they said, the shoulders of the of the church fathers. A lot of what they contributed to to church history, helping to understand, was very valuable. Some of the other stuff not so valuable. But the point is. Is that all of that has to be that you make that decision through the lens of scripture, you know, so yeah. scripture, it has to be pressed through the filter of scripture to see if it's sure. trustworthy or not. And and some of it is very helpful. Um, some of it's not so helpful, but scripture alone means that scripture is our the uh, top authority alone. Um, the, the church fathers are not on that same level. Uh, they contributed a lot of great things to to the church and we still benefit from them today. But they're not on the same authoritative level as as scripture. No. Uh, anything else, Dad? No. It's... Yeah, we went. Let's see. Ooh, fifty three minutes. That's a long one. But I think people will be uh, find it interesting because anytime you get your questions answered, uh, it's always helpful. Uh, so uh, Clay usually says something about <laughs> our Twitter handle and all that stuff. You can go back to one of our other episodes to to catch that. But uh, hopefully, this has been helpful. Uh, we're a little too slow to respond to questions. Uh, we apologize for that, but keep sending us your questions uh, if you have them, especially if you found this uh, helpful, and uh, we'll do our best to get to get to them. But until next time, which will not be uh, too long, uh, we'll be back in here recording another episode. Um, have a little bit more time these days. Uh, God bless. Until next time. Mm-hmm.